A 2018 profile in Australian magazine The Monthly implies that today's guest on Changemaker Chats might be the most influential and connected Australian in the world. He's a globally recognised changemaker and digital social movement entrepreneur who has recently co-written a book called New Power, How Power Works in Our Hyper-Connected World and How to Make It Work for You. Our Changemaker Chat is with Jeremy Hymans. Jeremy is renowned for having taken the idea of connecting simple digital actions into threads of change. He played a founding role in the establishment of Avaz, a global activist organisation of nearly 47 million members, and he co-founded GetUp, a million-member Australian digital activist organisation. He also runs Purpose, which is focused on non-hierarchical and participatory progressive movement building. Along the way, Jeremy has addressed the World Economic Forum at Davos, and his TED Talk, What New Power Looks Like, has been viewed millions of times. Jeremy's new book on new power has been described by reviewers as a manual on how to navigate the 21st century. Today we talk about navigating and mapping the creation of spaces for participation, and how mass participation and mobilisation has evolved in a world of ubiquitous connectivity. We also explore some of the models and mindsets that have sprung up around mass participation and mobilisation. We look at the differences between old power and new power and find that new power is the essential 21st century skill of harnessing the energy of the connected crowd to get what you want done. Jeremy characterises it as something you can't hoard, but rather you can channel to help shape. Curious? Well, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. We're supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. It is pretty exciting today uh, to be in the studio with a great friend and influential thinker. Jeremy Hymans has just written, uh, co-authored a book called New Power that helps us think about how our new digital hyper-connected world changes how we think about making the world a better place. But he's also a lovely friend of mine who I've known since university days. We helped set up Get Up Together, and I've always admired his cutting-edge thinking in this space. So it's a delight and a pleasure to have him in here today for one of our Changemaker Chats. So welcome, Jeremy. It's so good to be here, and it's also been amazing to see how quickly Changemaker has, has, has taken off. The number of people who said to me as we were putting this book together, you really must be on this podcast called Changemaker. And I was like, yeah, I've got a good in on that one, actually. <laughs> good in. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We were very happy to have you for sure. So I want to take you back to the start of your journey and I want to ask you, what do you think first interested you in making social change? Well, I think, um, I think this started very young for me and I think there were probably two, um, currents of it. One was my family story and the way that that helped to shape me. So I think that having, my father was born in, um, in an attic. He spent the first 18 months of his life, uh, in hiding from the Nazis in Holland. He'd been taken in by a Christian family. And so a lot of my childhood was about the stories of this narrow escape and, uh, what it meant. And so 
I definitely had this sense growing up that like, it was kind of a lucky thing that I was here in the first place. Uh, and there was a lot, um, of focus on, um, that event. And so I think there was probably a, a desire having heard that story so many times, um, as such a woven into the fabric of my childhood to kind of try to shape the world that I was living in, um, so that something like that wouldn't happen. And this was, you know, when I was coming into consciousness as a, as a political being, which was probably at about age five, <laughs> I, <laughs> you started early. <laughs> you started very early. I definitely, you know, this was the peak of the, co- the sort of the, the, it was just before everything kind of started to thaw, right? The superpower, um, the cold war, it was kind of Reagan, mid eighties, um, Gorbachev hadn't quite arrived on the scene yet when I was five. And there was a lot of anxiety that I remember about a nuclear war. And that was seen as something that might happen. So I grew up with that. Those twin anxieties, I think were really important. And then I think the other element was, I, I was also just very drawn to politics as a, as an arena. So I think other kids might've been passionate about sport. And actually I also, uh, which seems improbable now was a deeply passionate rugby league fan. Oh my God. I know. People have to see Jeremy People to appreciate this. People who like, really? This is deep. This, but I was, I loved, I was, I, I was, I was a Canterbury-Bankstown Bulldogs fan, if you can believe it. And, uh, but the other thing that really fascinated me was politics. I have this very early memory of, uh, 1983, uh, uh, Malcolm Fraser is conceding defeat in the 1983 election and the drama of it, I found very, uh, found very compelling. It kind of, I was very drawn to it. So I knew that this was something that I was really interested in understanding what, why did this generate such emotion? What did it mean? And, uh, so part of me also kind of followed politics the way other kids might follow sport. And so where did that take you? You know, like where, where did all that energy, that energy of being a, a new, a new migrant and having an extraordinary story of survival, where did that give you energy later into your political, into your political life? Where, where Mm. did that Mm. Where did that source heat for you? Well, you know, both my parents are immigrants. My mum is Lebanese. And I think that part of what that shaped for me was I didn't see the boundaries of my activism as starting and ending in Australia. So I think from a very early age um, and the nature of my childhood activism, because I had this sort of funny career as, as a late Cold War child activist where I was part of this troop of children, basically, who were seen as peace ambassadors. And I got incredible opportunities as a kid, you know, between the ages of about eight and 14, where I would, I get, I, I met with world leaders and I met with Nobel prize winners and I just ordinary had this, childhood. Yeah, very ordinary, but I had this amazing exposure. And so I think, um, even then I was thinking about international issues. So I was always very interested in what was happening at home, but I always had this sense that my contribution, at least for some parts of my career would end up being global. So that was, I think, one thing that like was definitely shaped by being the child of immigrants and having had this very unusual exposure to the world and mm-hmm. to traveling the world doing this political activism very early. Yeah, that makes complete sense. It makes sense as to where you've come. We're going to get to that. So one of the things that you're... Um, known for is your interest in digital tools for making change. And even before GetUp, um, in Australia, one of Australia's leading digital um, organisations, um, you were interested in digital tools. I'm wondering when did, that, when did you first realise or start to realise that new forms of technology um, 
were going to be significant for social change. Can you remember at that early stage mm. what made it so interesting to you? Yeah. Well, I, look, I was always fascinated by it, um, but and I was always just using whatever tools were available, right? So when I was, uh, you know, 12, I was trying to send faxes, r- trying to run fax campaigns, right, to stop the first Gulf War. So there was always this, this interest in in using whatever the tools were. Now, you know, it, it's no surprise then that having been thinking about um, – new ways to mobilize people that as soon as the space emerged in the early 2000s um, of this kind of internet and how it might revolutionize politics, I was immediately drawn to that space. Partly also because I have a very outside-in perspective on change and digital tools are about how you mobilize everyday people, um, not necessarily about institutions. So uh, it all made sense that I would kind of be gravitating in that direction and that's exactly what happened. Yeah. What's an example of your first attempt to use the internet? So um, it really was in uh, 2004 when George W. Bush was up for re-election in America and the Iraq war was raging. And uh, I had studied in America. I'd been at grad school in America and I got together with my friend David Madden and we and some American friends worked on this um, really exciting effort to mobilize people during the Iraq war. And the, the heart of that effort was a group of women called the Band of Sisters that we kind of helped to put together whose loved ones were in Iraq or had died in Iraq and who'd um, previously, many of them, been supporters of the president and who'd turned against him and were really powerful moral voices against the war. And we did all sorts of really fun stuff like crowdfund to hire them a private jet to chase Dick Cheney wherever he was. And we just landed right at the coalface of this fascinating emerging moment where groups like moveon.org were, were scaling very fast, um, where the Dean campaign, you know, was, was unfolding, um, where as, as, as many of your listeners will know, a lot of the innovations actually came from that era, not from the Obama era. Obama Mm. kind of took that toolkit and was a more effective, uh, you know, it was a more effective vessel in many ways for these new, these new techniques that had developed. So, um, I got involved in that world and, you know, then got involved with a number of the pioneers of that world, uh, very early. Um, and that was incredible. And so that was, as you know, very well, the part of the backstory for, for get up and, and you yourself, you know, knew that we'd been in the U S doing this work and you were like, aha, <laughs> that sounds cool. there's something here that we need. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, you were the one who, uh, who, who basically persuaded us to, to come and, and try this in Australia. It was a fun effort. Anyway, it, it we don't sure need to was. pat each other on the back about <laughs> that. <laughs> um, but I am interested, you know, you, you are a digital social movement entrepreneur, you know, with co-founding GetUp and then a few years later you co-founded Avaz as a global digital movement. I'm wondering what were some of the key lessons, some of the joys and mistakes that you learnt from those experiments? Well, you know, these were, these were moments, these were of their time, right? Uh, in, in great and and not so great ways. So one of the things I think that, that is true is that when we launched GetUp and, and later when we were involved with Avaz, both of those groups, you know, the idea of giving people the opportunity to take simple digital actions was incredibly novel to people. So even I remember when we launched GetUp, the very first campaign was just, we built this very simple tool that allowed people to email their representatives um, who'd just been, uh, formed the new Senate, which was controlled at that point for the first time in a generation by the coalition. 
And it was so simple. And all we asked people to do is, you know, tell politicians you'd be holding them to account, tell them the issues they cared about. But there was such an appetite for these new forms of participation that people just, you know, absolutely gobbled them up. And I think, and I think over the, you know, over the arc then of the last, you know, 15 almost years of doing this kind of work, and for good reason, I think the bar has gone up on the kinds of participation that people expect and want. And it's gone far beyond the simple digital actions like signing petitions that um, our early work was focused on. Although even then, the early work understood that there was much more to it than that. Do you remember any mistakes that you think that we made or in either GetUp or Avaz? Mm. I mean, I'm sure. I think over time, the the mistake that some of these groups have made, and I don't think GetUp has made it, but I think some other groups have made it, is they become a little bit too doctrinaire and they become a little bit too uh, routinized. So it ends up sounding less authentic than it started with. So when we started GetUp, and I think, by the way, GetUp has not fallen into this trap, to be clear. But when we started GetUp, we were so it, we were so insistent that it have a voice that sounded like an ordinary person, um, that it be very member focused. And then you see how this email, this email kind of campaigning style has evolved. They all look the same now. They all have the same breathless tone. They all have the same like, "Will you?" question mark. You know, Barack Obama was reduced to kind of emails with subject lines like "dinner?" question mark. With the, with the sender being Barack Obama. Uh, and, you know, he was never inviting you to dinner, it turned out. But he was always asking you to give money to enter a raffle to have dinner with him. So the point is that I think there's been a commoditization of the space um, that, um, that I think maybe we should have been more thoughtful about from the beginning. And as everybody now, you know, all these different organ- activist groups and NGOs, you know, mimicked the style and the format and the approach. And, you know, when we started GetUp, we were really the only ones who knew how to do this, right? And now lots of people have at least understood the principles and have attempted to emulate it. And that's created a world in which I think some of these models um, no longer feel very connected to that, that genuine agency and participation that people felt so excited about when they joined these groups. And it is that value of participation as opposed to... Um the style of communication that you emphasise so much about new power. Like that's, that is what people are getting at when they're being powerful is they're creating spaces for participation. Right. And so that's the real lesson and takeaway for anyone who's involved in not-for-profits or community organisations that are trying to use this form of communication. It's not mimicry of the email style. It's space for participation. Exactly. And I think somewhere along the line, some of this work has lost that. And that's part of why, you know, in my work um, since Get Up and Avaz, I've been interested in how the model evolves, where it goes, trying it out in different contexts, shifting it. Uh, And that's part of the reason I'm quite inspired by some of these new decentralized social movements that we describe in the book. So, you know, we spend a lot of time, as you know, in the book talking about Black Lives Matter and, you know, very different in a bunch of ways in its attitude to leadership, to structure, to how ideas get propagated, much more reliant on individuals taking the idea and making it their own and adapting it with much less structure. Now, that's not uniformly better, but there's a lot we can learn from the spirit of those movements, even when um, we're in organizations that, um, for good reason, bring a little bit more of what we would call old power to the table. 
Yep. And we're going to get into some of those tensions between old power and new power right. and the learning between them in a minute. Right. But I actually just wanted to ask you one more question about sort of your journey into being a change maker, mm. which is the establishment of purpose. Mm. Because purpose is a, a piece of infrastructure, increasingly global infrastructure, mm. that is supporting, um, you know, social movements around social movements, not-for-profits and businesses around the world to create and generate new power inside their organisation. But these things are not always easy. Like, mm. it's nice to sort of celebrate their success mm. at this point. Mm. Tell us a little bit about the journey and how you brought purpose to life. Mm. Yeah. So purpose, you know, I think partly came out of this this concern I just articulated, which was what we're doing is really important, but it's not it's not the whole picture. And what I was drawn to with purpose was sort of two things. One was this idea of taking the model that we'd developed and applying it to many other issue areas and many other geographies than we'd done it, right? So I thought of an issue like LGBT rights, where it was like, at the international level, there was just no dynamic campaigning capacity on that issue. So one of the early things we did at Purpose was we started a group called All Out, which took the model that GetUp used, which, um, you know, which... Uh, you know, we're still really delivering um, and applied it to this issue of solidarity on LGBT rights and not just helping guys get married in New York and Sydney, but also helping people um, escape uh, bills that would make being gay subject to the death penalty in places like Uganda. So one part of it was that, was sort of taking the model and applying it um, and incubating that model in lots of other contexts. Another part of it was the idea of bringing together a kind of bigger DNA in terms of the disciplines that you need to make social change. So, you know, get up and these groups very, very much politics plus technology. And I felt like there needed to be even more creative creativity brought to bear in order to really do some of this narrative shifting work on issues that needed more culture that weren't just about these pointy moments of change where you sort of topple something by getting everybody to push. So we brought creatives together with, you know, political folks and strategists and technologists and campaigners. And that was really interesting because you put those people in the room and they made different kinds of work. And the third thing that I think was sort of legacy organizations. So it was clear to me, and maybe legacy is a bit pejorative, but it was clear to me that um, what we understood about some of these new forms of engagement were badly needed by groups that do really important work in the world but, but but that work is not necessarily being well served now by their, their means of communication and engagement. So an example would be the ACLU in the US. So the ACLU's venerable civil rights group, absolutely critical part of the progressive infrastructure defending, um, you know, the First Amendment and a lot more. And uh, so an example of a purpose project was working with them to help modernize their sort of um, engagement infrastructure and digital work which I think did help when the time came when Trump was uh, was inaugurated and he announced the Muslim ban. The ACLU was incredibly effective at catching the rain in that moment. and Amazing. Amazing. And we certainly take no credit for that directly. But I think it was partly that work that we did helping to move a legacy organization that meant that they could move fast, um, and be nimble at that critical. And moment. look at them now. I mean, they're doing this extraordinary people power Amazing stuff. Amazing work. You know, That's, like it's they've yeah. unleashed their own power in an extraordinary. They really way. have. And you know, there are people like Becky Bond, who I'm sure you've, you've probably interviewed on this program, but folks like that who really think about um, 
you know, taking that energy that you get, you know, at the bottom of the curve or the funnel and moving it into these deeper, uh, these deeper kind of groups, that work is phenomenal. So they've changed a lot as an organization. So, so there was this desire to work with the organizations who were so hungry to figure out how to do this and help them transform. And that also required a sort of different set of people because activists are not always the best people to help big bureaucratic organizations change. That was one of the things that was quite challenging in the early years of Purpose, was reconciling our activist DNA with the patience, frankly, mm. required to um, help organizations change and evolve when that change can be very painful. Mm. And we're going to talk about shapeshifters. Great. And that kind of change in a minute. I love the language that the New Power book um, uses. So let's get to this question of how do we make change? And uh, to me, uh, you know, new power has been a, a, a your tome, right? It's been a, a big investment of thinking um, for you to sort of express an understanding how you think we need to make change and the context in which change is being made. So, um, you know, just to start for for our listeners, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what new power is and some of the and some of the the purpose in writing the book? What are you trying to explain? What are you trying to get across to people? Mm. Well, sort of the origin for why we started doing this work. Um, Sort of as, so part of it was, you know, had been doing, as you say, all of this work as a practitioner for, you know, more than a decade and um, was synthesizing that in my own head, but realized that there was a way that the synthesis of that could be very useful more broadly, not just by the way for activists, but for others who were Mm. thinking about participation, as you said, um, thinking about how you do engagement. So, and the origin was that, you know, and, and we always get asked these questions like, you know, did Twitter cause the Arab Spring? Which is like a really dumb question, um, you know, because the focus is always, there's always this fascination with whatever the latest tool or platform is. But of course, as activists, we know that the first thing you look at and to understand anything you're trying to change is power right? Who has it, who doesn't, how it's moving and changing. So we created a framework, um, uh, around this idea of new power, um, which was really just a way of describing the models and mindsets that, um, are springing up around mass participation in, uh, and mobilization in a world of ubiquitous connectivity, um, which does create these entirely new possibilities. So we think of new power as kind of the essential 21st century skill of harnessing the energy of a connected crowd in order to get what you want done. And if you think about Bertrand Russell's very simple definition of power, the ability to produce intended effects, the old power way to do that, the traditional exercise of power is you hoard power. There's something you have, there's something you own, there's something you know that someone else doesn't have. And that's how you exercise power. You hoard authority. Um, new power is a different way to exercise power that is based on uh, something you can't hoard, but that you can channel uh, and help to shape. And the book is about how to do that. And the book is is a delightful write-up of hundreds of stories. I think that's an understatement. Like just so many stories of organizations succeeding or struggling. Mm. And, you know, like the way in which the book illustrates this example, it's not a, a hefty academic tome, no. as nice as academics are. It's it's a very accessible story-based um, expression of, of trying to un- understand the dynamics that exist in new power and when they also struggle or fall into old power. What you describe, I mean, you talk about um, new power as being neutral, 
mm. right? As a mm. force that has strengths mm -hmm. and a force that has weaknesses. And mm. I want to move slowly mm. through an exploration of that because mm -hmm. I think, I think at some level people, uh, I guess, assume that, that because you've written a book about new power, you must be just thinking that new power is full of positives and <laughs> has no negatives, right? Right. And that is actually the, the, uh, that is a lot of people's first starting point on this, on this work. Um, which is interesting because that's definitely not our argument. Yeah, you, it's more that you. I get the impression you're more trying to explain a new world to people. Yes. Yeah. So let's let's look at that new world, and I'm interested, you know, in the in the, the positives and the strengths first, like the the positive potential of new power. You know, you describe in the book, and you've already mentioned the the possibilities that come from the organisational. Um, sort of loose organisational network that is Black Lives Matter mm. or similarly the, the, the shapeshifters or the super participants mm. that can transform old power institutions mm. or can, can, can create connectivity in, in new power spaces. What um, excites you the most about new power and why? I am someone who does have a, an inherent bias toward things that unleash people's agency and creativity and desire to act collectively. So of course, you know, I wrote this book with Henry because we believe in that, right? And we just want it to be harnessed for good. We know it won't always be harnessed for good, but of course we believe that when, and this is, you know, from my own activism, you, you these extraordinary moments where you see people come together around moments of love and solidarity. And we've seen this in the get up movement on so many occasions, right? Organizing people around love, like the gay marriage campaigns, like the campaigns to help kids stuck in detention. So, you know, that, that is the most exciting thing is those moments. And I, you know, I mentioned this the other day, the things like the I'll ride with you moment that sprung up after the Sydney siege, where people offered to help uh, Muslims who were afraid for their safety in an environment that was very Islamophobic after the Sydney siege, to ride with them on public transport to make them feel safe. It's things like that. It's moments like the refugees welcome moment where people start organising to show up with flowers in train stations to greet refugees um, coming in from, uh, from Syria and elsewhere. Those moments are, are why I believe that this form of power uh, is one that we need to uh, build on and deploy in the most positive way we can. I know, they're so moving. It gives me goosebumps. Mm, me too. But also you're aware that the new power has, um, has its flaws, has its weaknesses. And the book identifies uh, many concepts and rules to try and help manage those weaknesses. Mm. Um, what do you most worry about in mm. our hy hyper-connected world? So I think there's two kinds of weakness. There's a, um, there's a danger and a weakness. So the danger is very real, which is th these tools of engagement are neutral and they can be used by good actors or bad actors, depending on how you define them. And in the book, we talk a lot about groups like the NRA, master of um, very sophisticated new power repertoire, Donald Trump, very effective at building uh, a digital crowd, creating intensity in that crowd and using that to help him get elected. So there's this tussle. I feel like this is a big part of the world today. That we think the future will be won by those who mobilize best. And the key tool of mobilization now is new power. So the question is, who's going to do it? And in fact, we're pretty sober about it because in the book we point out that the people who are, you know, 
extreme or who are prepared to make stuff up, um, who are on the side of, uh, you know, denialism and conspiracy theories, they start at an advantage because lies spread faster than truth. And we know this, right? So that's the the meta context. That's the danger. And we explore that in the book. And we also talk about some of the antidotes. The weakness is, of course, that um, new power on its own is often not the right strategic approach to get uh, to achieve Bertrand Russell's intended effects. And we talk about how uh, you need to blend old and new power. So, you know, we talk about the Occupy movement, its strengths and its weaknesses in terms of a way to, um, to achieve change. We talk about platforms like Reddit, which are these new power platforms that have deep vulnerabilities in part because uh, of the agency and power they give their participants and what we call their super participants, the people who run their, their message boards. So um, a lot of the book is about this work of figuring out when do you use new power and how do you use new power? And to be very clear, we make a very explicit argument that there are many circumstances in which you want to blend old and new power. And some of the models in today's world that most effectively do that, as we argue in the book, NRA being one of them, are the ones who are getting ahead. Thus the need for this text right now. Exactly. That's the mission of the book. The mission of the book is, and the reason I'm on this podcast and not, uh, you know, Glenn Beck's, is that, um, is that, you know, we need these tools in the hands of the angels. And, and, and those of us on the side of science and reason and truth and all that stuff, not to mention the progressive values that we would share, like often think, ah, it's, it's, it's just, a, it's enough to be right. Or why should we have to, to, to get out, sully our hands with this new power stuff? Um, and that's a real problem. <laughs> yeah. Because being right is just not enough. It sure isn't. It's not enough. We're and we're learning that now. We've sort of struggled with that. The hard way. Yeah. So I just want to ask one, you know, curious question, Mm -mm. which is um, you chose the phrase new power to conceptualise what you're writing about. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's a bit of a bold call, Mm -hmm. right? You know, it's an ancient tool, the idea of power, you know, Roman emperors and kings Mm -hmm. and revolutionaries Mm -hmm. have all used this idea of power. You know, it's been understood by Machiavelli and Foucault, you know, and then the, you, I guess the, the sort of subtlety of the argument you're putting is that there has been a change in how power works and now that there is this mm-hmm. manifestation of something new. Mm. Why do you think it was the right frame for describing what you were doing? It's a great question. It's, you know, and, and as you've read, our argument is not um, movements are new. Our argument is not mm. that bottom-up power of some kind is new, that networks are new. They've always existed in different forms. So have hierarchies, so has traditional authority. Um, but we think that there are some, you know, there, there are things about a world in which most people have their hands on these means of participation, which are enabling new phenomena. And our focus was on describing the bits that were new, right? So in a sense, you can think of new power as early 21st century power. How do some of these forms of power that have always existed manifest in our world today? And so we think the Me Too movement, for example, is sort of materially different in important ways to social movements before. And that's because of the new power dimensions of the movement. You know, we think about our own childhoods, Amanda, we're about the same age. 
um, and probably almost exactly the same age. Yeah, and, uh, precisely. With, yeah, I think within like weeks maybe. Um, and, you know, remember like, you know, when we were growing up, there were these five TV stations, there was the radio. There weren't that many ways we could shape our world. So the implications of a world in which these parkland kids on the gun issue in America can go and command audiences of millions within days, right? Uh, and can, uh, or a world in which a movement like Me Too can shift and metastasize to sweep up, you know, um, giants in a matter of weeks across geographies and industries. That's interesting. Airbnb, a model like that, that relies on many of these new power dynamics, there was no way in an old power world that you could create that, that platform. There were people who had like, you know, kind of, uh, you know, catalogs where, you know, you would go and you would look for someone's apartment on a catalog, but you know, sure that that was a network, but you couldn't do it at anywhere near the scale. And therefore all sorts of new behaviors get enabled. All sorts of new possibilities get created by that speed, that scale, that density, um, and that geographic, uh, spread. So, um, our claim is never movements are new. Our claim is that there's some really interesting new stuff here that we should study. And a lot of what the book is about is focusing on it really kind of really honing in on what's different about 20th century, particularly really when we talk about old power as well, a lot of that is the way we understood power and exercised it in the 20th century. Right. Yeah. And so, um, we picked a frame that in, in frankly, was catchy and compelling because as good communicators, we know that that's how you spread ideas. Um, and, uh, it's not to be taken, um, as a, as a claim that everything, uh, that's bottom up is new. Yep. It is catchy. I think it's, it's very catchy. And our mission with the book was like, we wanted to create a vocabulary that was simple enough that people could start using it to understand their world. And the reason we wrote the book and called it New Power and not something more academic and rarefied was precisely because we saw how sticky the language was and how helpful people started to find it mm-hmm. as, as we, you know, and obviously we go into much more detail in the book about what new power values are, what old power values are, what the models are, how they work, the behaviors of old and new power, that, that once you gave people this frame, it did help them think about change. It did help them think about their own worlds and even their own lives. And so, um, I think we tried to take some of our own medicine here uh, and create an idea that was, um, that was uh, able to be adapted and, and, and shared by many others. Including, you know, for, for my mind and probably of interest to the audience, that it's definitely interesting to not-for-profits, change makers, social change people, but it's equally interesting to, to businesses and large organisations. That's their, the adaptability across forms of public life, you know, from the market to civil society is clear. So I want to, I want to just move into the final section of the interview and just, I guess, engaging in a sort of reflection around making change and, you know, building off both the book and your practice of new power. I'm wondering, um, what's the most important lesson you have learned about making change? Well, you know, I believe that uh, my role in that world, in that ecosystem, is to make change largely from the outside. And that's not for everybody. So my, I'm not telling you that um, everybody should do, make the kind of change that I do. But I know myself and my strengths and my weaknesses. And it's, I've learned that the kind of change I'm always going to make 
is I'm going to be figuring out what this next model for engagement is and trying that out. I'm going to be thinking about ways to mobilize people to impact institutions. So that for me is, is a lesson. And there are definitely aspects of my work that are about big institutions. The book that I've written, Purpose, does a lot of that work. Um, so I very much value that work. But I think for me as an individual, my role in the world is going to be to focus there. And I hope I'm still doing it when I'm 90. So what I like, that's ambitious. Good. I hope you're doing it when you're 92. I'm a big fan of that model of like the Jimmy Carter model. He's like 90 and he Stick it is in. Just <laughs> still trying to make the world better every day. Um, I'm sure his, wa- his wife finds it very irritating, <laughs> but it's amazing. But what's interesting in your response to that question to me is, and I guess this is a lesson for anyone who's listening, is that the, part of the art of knowing when you're making powerful change is knowing what works for you. Definitely. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And you've got to know, you know, if, you, if you're a person, and this is not me, with the patience to be a shapeshifter. In the book, we talk about shapeshifters as these people within big institutions with unimpeachable credibility. They're steeped in that institution, but who then are able to kind of transform themselves into these agents of change. And we think of Pope Francis as a great example of a current shapeshifter figure. Some of them are very successful. Some of them, like Gorbachev, you know, kind of stumble. (laughs) It's part of the work, right? But um, shapeshifters, you know, are people with that, they're steeped in institutions. They have the patience to navigate these old power structures. That's not really me. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I think like, you know, that, that's an important thing to understand. Now, as I've matured as, a, as an activist and as a person, I've had to build a lot of institutions around the things that I'm passionate about and then around the work that I do. So I've had to engage with um, that um, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I've had to get better at that work. Um, and I certainly wasn't great at it when I started doing it. Um, but, uh, but it is important to know where ultimately you want to be putting your energies. Yep. Yep. I think there's a lesson in that for all of us. Definitely. <laughs> and so when you look at the vast world of people trying to make change and, and you're based in the U S and my goodness, you know, living under, under the world of Trump and we all, no matter where people are in the world are facing terrible issues like climate change. What do you think? So thinking of those change makers, mm. whoever they may be facing mm. these enormous challenges. Mm. What is the most urgent thing that you think these people need to be doing differently and why? Uh, You mean sort of change makers in general? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, the, the progressives still think in pretty old power terms about how change works um, in a lot of ways. They're quite institutional and that's a real risk in a world in which the people who are getting ahead are much more fluid in their exercise of power. Now, sometimes that fluidity is almost a form of organized chaos. So the Trumpian strategy is, you know, Trump doesn't know how to structure anything, but he does know how to create power out of chaos, you know, out of all of this energy by saying to his protesters, saying to his supporters, if you punch one of my protesters at a rally, I'll pay your legal fees. By retweeting a white supremacist, the symbol that sends when he retweets the most extreme of his supporters, then doesn't apologize. That symbol is that he's, he's really saying, go do your worst. I've got your back. Um, I want you to be powerful. And then I think about, you know, the Democratic Party in the US is a good example right now. You know, I don't know, does the Democratic Party really want its supporters to be more powerful? There's not a lot of evidence of that. And I think that's a real challenge for the party. You know, it's still focused on whether the slogan should be a better deal or, you know, you know, together 
forward together or, you know, these are terrible, terrible frames and they're very much in an old power kind of soundbite mindset. And in the book, we contrast the idea of a soundbite with a meme drop. And the soundbite is this message that you construct from the top and that is perfectly formed and that you just ask everybody to repeat and that's it. And the meme drop is unfinished and it's deliberately designed to be taken and changed and adapted by the people who carry it forward. And I think, you know, the Democratic Party is a good example, is stuck in a, in a, in a soundbite world that is increasingly changing. So, you know, and even Barack Obama, an Obama figure in 2020, you know, taking on Trump, will need to be even more new power in the way that they build a movement around their candidacy. You know, his candidacy was brilliantly structured um, and gave people terrific opportunities to participate. But... Uh, not enough, I don't think, relative to now. And Obama's great weakness, as we argue in the book, was that his movement didn't move without him. And he didn't really govern with the new power. Um, He campaigned with new power and governed with old. Yeah, yeah. If you could share, and this is my last question for you, the last question of the interview, if you could share one message with our Changemaker audience about what it takes to change the world, what would it be? I mean, look, this is probably a bit of a cliche, but there's no substitute for just unbelievable tenacity and perseverance. I think of all the useful things that I've done in the world. You remember from when we were getting Get Up started. You know, there were a million doors that closed in our face. There was a wall of resistance. <laughs> there was there were some hilarious moments where old power tried to just seize control of of uh, of it or or said, well we you know you know, why can't we just own this thing? You know, there was so much of that. And um you know, my philosophy is always just like, you've got to be tenacious about this sort of work and you've got to keep finding other ways in. And so all the things that I've done in my life that I'm truly proud of have required a degree of perseverance and tenacity. I think even of purpose, you know, I've been doing that for nine years now. There were lots of moments on the journey that, you know, I think would have been perfectly fine to have said, I'm going to hang up my hat. This is all too hard. And you know, it took that tenacity. It took staying in the game to get that organization, for example, to a place where I'm incredibly proud of it and it's doing incredibly impactful work. So my message, uh, as old as Methuselah, as old power as it comes is stick with it. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Amanda. Cool. Changemaker Chats are hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Our Changemaker Chats are produced by me. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We are also supported by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. And don't forget to register for one of our masterclasses if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. Changemaker.